Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We uh, we were foolish and uh, tried to live without heat for a few. When was that? Just recently. We just recently turned our heat on, and in the meanwhile, I think too much cold made me sick. So I got the wood stove down, and I had it set to six, which is really hot. Sarah said it's hotter than Satan's kitchen. Anyways, we have thermostat wars within our household. Well, we live in this big old house, and it's uh, expensive to heat. You got, you can't freeze. You got no, you can't. It means brick doesn't hold the insulation pretty well. It, it's a facade of brick. I mean, it's real brick. You know, it's not layered in. It's just one layer mm-hmm. of brick, and then it's uh, uh, wood walls and i don't think there's much insulation if any i don't know if there's any insulation in those walls and our windows are all old windows and maybe i got a question or two and then we can get into it when john is talking about the economy are we talking about the three persons of the trinity or are we talking mean, because it, he was saying that as god is before and after the economy but humanity is in between that it was a statement and I'll just quote it. He says, Christ is always both before the economy and after it. The human being, however, is neither before it nor after it, but only during the time of the economy. Neither is the human being before the virgin nor after the ascent into heaven is the flesh still in its own properties. And so as I'm just as I was reading John's literature i'm i'm still trying to figure out because he never gave a definition of the economy or i just failed to see it so what is the economy are we talking about just god's essence or god's being or persons or are we talking about something outside the cross it's the relationship between the father and the son and and your question is the key question if you can understand this you can understand everything about origin First of all, in describing the first principle, you know, that's a very Greek idea that we're going to do first. Yeah, we're, but, not, we're not talking the Aristotelian philosophy. We're not doing that. Christ is the first principle. And so he's going to examine the titles of Christ, and meaning the relationship of Christ to the Father. And what he comes down to is that we know that, the, that in Christ, the nature of his di- divinity as he is the only begotten uh, son of God. And the nature of his divinity then is in this relationship, and that's the economy. I I was trying to quote here. I didn't do very good. Uh, Human nature in which the last times he took on account of the economy. So the gospel as first principle requires that he begin by looking at Christ, who Christ is, the Son of God, the Father, and the Spirit is his origin. As no one can be a father without having a son, nor a master without possessing a servant, so even God cannot be called omnipotent unless there exist those over whom he may exercise his power. And therefore, that God may be shown to be almighty, it is necessary that all things should exist. This is principle 1.2.10. It is through the Son that the Father is almighty. And this position of the Father is extended through the Son into all of creation. Quote, for through wisdom which is Christ, God has power over all things, not only by authority, the authority of a ruler, in other words, not an oppressive authority, but by the voluntary obedience of his subjects. Let me give you one more quote. This is from Origen. He exercises his power over them by means of his word 
because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow both of things in heaven and earth and things on earth and things under earth. And if every knee is bent to Jesus, then without doubt, it is Jesus to whom all things are subject. And he it is who exercises power over all things and through whom all things are subject to the Father. For through wisdom, i.e. by word and reason, not by force and necessity, are all things subject. How do we know who God is? Well, God establishes his fatherhood in relationship to his son, and what we mean by the son is not anything different than we mean by the incarnation. In other words, we're not talking about a pre-existent Christ here. Exactly. We're, we're talking about the Christ on the cross, who is fully man and fully God. And that, with, if we disconnect him from the Father, we don't understand God. And that's the who Father. God is. And so the, the yeah. way that this will get expressed, actually not up until the 20th century, is or the economic trinity is the imminent trinity. We don't need that language. That's not origins language. But the point is that God is really who he is in and through Christ Jesus. And we need to say Christ Jesus, that is yes. God, man. That This is not a secondary revelation or God made visible. This is the reality. It, your question is the key question. And if you get this, then all of the heresies, or most all of the heresies he's accused of, fall away because he's talking about this relationship between time and eternity. Well, uh, I mean, when he was going back, you know, he was saying, well, what about the, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth? Well, you can't. You have to view that still through the events of the cross. And I mean, even though that was eternity past, it, it, it came to its completion at the fulfillment of Jesus and his messianic mission to die for our sins. I think Origen is just trying to say, don't look through history as a chronological thing. Jesus and the cross is the pinnacle of all all of who God is, and that is how we reinterpret or see him in his fullness. And if we see him at the crucified Christ, then we can fully understand God the Father, and Jesus is the Almighty, just as the Father is the Almighty, and all is subjected to him because the Father has given that all things unto, unto him because of his obedience and love for the Father. Yeah, the economy of God is ultimately the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. And that's as simple as we can say it, right? Or is, that that's too, or, is that, or is that too simplistic? No, it's not too simplistic if we understand that when we say that, that's inclusive of all creation. He is yeah, the firstborn he's, of all. He's the, he's the Logos who have made all things, and he is with the Father in that creation process. Yeah, I mean, whether, that's how we understand the Father and the Son working. Right, right. The, and, and to say understand, I'm not sure that uh, there is a way of conceiving this. But, of course, what we're describing is a different, it, it's a different conceptual reality. We're almost thinking, you know, this is Bear's point. He says that the cross is an eternal fact about God. You know, I, I think we tend to think of timelessness or eternity as just a very long time. But maybe a way of picturing is that this is that eternity encompasses time. And so the events of the life of Christ, you know, this is Rowan Williams, uh, that uh, the, the story of Jesus is not simply one episode in the, the story of God. This is, this is the only biography of God we have. And so it's eternally true. I think you could just say that the cross or the life of Christ is an eternal fact about God. So these things have always been true. They will always have been true from the perspective of eternity. Just from the fact of God making creation, he was the crucified one. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's what Origen is getting at too, right, Paul? 
That's what or, Origin is saying is uh, nobody's understanding. Well, I shouldn't say nobody, but in other words, his enemies, his friends, his translators, a lot of people are going to misunderstand what he's saying. He's going to be condemned by the Fifth Ecumenical Council. They're going to write 15, the 15 anathemas. Oh, if wow. you believe these things, and they're saying Origen believes these things that are, uh, if you believe this, then you're going to make yourself anathema. So they co completely dispose of this. I think it's a uh, the alternative to modern metaphysics. In other words, what's going to happen theologically is they're going to have continual problems talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son, God in relation. In other words, the Trinity is going to kind of become a, a problem unto itself apart from creation. People are going to start talking about the Trinity in isolation from the Incarnation. But I, I believe that there, there is just a captivity to a failed metaphysical understanding that if we had followed origin. In this this idea that we just said, we just ran it down. This is the the central idea, I think, in Origen's first principle. He's saying this relationship between the father and the son. That then relate, you know, who? How do we know what a human being is? Well, we know what a human being is in and through who Christ is, mm -hmm. so that he can begin to talk about humans as in terms of eternality that we were made for eternity. It's not that he believes that human beings were pre-existent in some Greek notion of pre-existence of souls, but he believes in God's foreknowledge or God's predetermined plan or God's predestination. And so the way of getting at this is the end is in the beginning. The telos of you know, dwelling with God forever, well, that's already there in the beginning from the perspective of eternity. Yeah, we're, we're just talking about the, yeah, the end rather than getting hung up on the beginning, which I think that's where a lot of our Calvinist friends are like, well, everything's already predetermined for where you're supposed to go. And Origen was speaking about, well, those who fell out were the ones who fell out of love for, for God. And they allowed their corruption to be with them, and and God would not, and God would take back His own soul. He was writing that John Mayer was kind of describing that part, and I just thought that was an interesting way about essentially everything belongs to God. Talking about the soul, and you know who are we? And we talking about with Irenaeus, we're recapitulating ourselves. You know, God became man so we can become God. And outside of God, we are nothing. You know, we're just corrupted. Our bodies are meant to hold the bodiless God. I know that's what he was, John was saying, or Origen was saying earlier, right? That could be a way of talking about theosis, wouldn't we say? Yeah, exactly. That's Athanasius's. And, and Origen is very much talking about, you know, the, theosis. You know, we're not used to talking that way, but I think that's the way the early church thought of it. And it, it is from the perspective of that Psalms passage, you know, that says you are gods and a mm -hmm. picture picturing of the throne room of God. Well, the gods there are God's creation. That is those participating, as Peter says, you know, you become participants in the divine nature. If we get our e economy right, we don't have Father and Son and Holy Spirit fighting against one another for That's redeeming right. humanity. That's why it's important to recover origin. I think that uh, this, you know, the recovery of origin, I think, is the recovery of the early church, is the recovery of the understanding of the New Testament. And I, I maybe I'm extreme here, but I just think that the condemnation of origin is, you know, you mentioned Calvinism. Well, that all begins to, you know, it's Augustine, and we're going to do Augustine this next week. But turns against Origen's notion of theosis specifically. That's what he doesn't like, and we're going to lose that. And we're with it. We're going to lose Origen's picture of metaphysics. 
And if we're going to run down metaphysics, Paul, we're just speaking about what again? Like, just uh, describe that to another simple person. It, just the idea of ultimate reality, you know, meta, uh, the, the, what, what holds all things together. Well, in this instance, we're thinking the relationship between time and eternity. Okay. But that's the relationship between the Father and the Son. In other words, the relationship between time and eternity is the relation between the Father and the Son. God, the Father, is timeless. He's eternal. We have no access to the eternal apart from Christ. the Son, who yeah. is eternal and time. The because Father he, is because invisible. he took on body, right? Because he right. took on the body, and so now we can now we can participate in the eternity because of Christ. Eternity has broken into time, and that's the apocalyptic kind of understanding. We lose, in other words, we lose an apocalyptic idea of a complete reordering. So what people are going to say, you know, about origin is really kind of what they're doing with Christianity. They're saying, oh, he's just one, he's Greek. And they're going to say, so is Christianity. It's just more Greek stuff. And, and I mean, many Christians believe that, you know. Uh, the, you mean like the Platonic view that our, in, in, uh, our souls are immortal? In a immortality of the soul, the idea of a complete division, a dualism between heaven and earth, the problems that will arise with the Trinity. I think all of that is because people are working from a kind of, you know, when we say Greek, I think we can almost just say human. The Greeks are kind of the premier philosophers and they're trying to work out you know what is the nature of the created order or, or they don't even use the notion of creation so they're you know the the famous uh, what is it plato says that uh time is the moving image of eternity they have a very different picture they have a, a denigrated view of the body and of material reality a lot of that will seep into christianity but that's not what Origen's doing, even no, though people not. are going to accuse him of that. In fact, most people, in other words, today, the, what we're doing and what John Bear is doing, and John Bear is referring to a guy named Samalicus, what they are doing is over and against the scholarly consensus that would place Origen, uh, uh, just say he's a Greek philosopher. He's a Christian, but he's he's holds to a Greek worldview. And maybe they do that just to dismiss all his thoughts. Not necessarily. Sometimes people do that approvingly. It just depends on who we're talking about. Okay, that was kind of just my first rundown. It's like I need to understand when we're talking about economy, we're speaking about the relationship between the Father and the Son. And I know I know John didn't really bring up the Spirit very much, unless we're just speaking about the Spirit being you know, being the force who inanimates. The spirit is life or... Yeah. But I thought Bear described the... And when he was describing the structure of on first principles, he talked about going back and forth between theology and economy. And I thought he explained economy as that which we can describe as worked out in history, say, for instance, on incarnation. Yeah, but yeah. Um, okay, so that makes that does line up with what you're saying. I was just thinking of my tightest definition of economy that I got from Bear somewhere in there. But the other thought I have, Paul, is just sort of even bigger picture. Wondering about this as we look at origin and reclaim the uh, orthodoxy that he represents, acknowledging that. The reason why it was obscured was it looked like it was a collusion of some sort with Greek or Platonic thought. We can look at that and sort of read differently with Bear and correct it. But at the same time, I'm wondering if what we might be doing or seeing an example of is theology, contextualized theology. And maybe this is what you're saying 
as well, and you can confirm that or um, or correct me on what what it is. I know that the issues with Ignatius and Irenaeus and Origen, as we move into Augustine, uh, the issue is around peace and the turn that is taken when this Latin uh, theologian comes on the scene and there are some significant departures from Origen and the early Greek fathers that Augustine represents. But if you take those two different models, East and West, from fleshing out the hypothesis, ways of articulating and reflecting theologically on Trinity and Incarnation, you could add to that the High Middle Ages and the modern and the postmodern as you know broad categories within western history and you can add to that i guess eastern interaction with buddhism or something like that i'm thinking that the idea of theology is a positive thing and a good conversation way of framing our conversation is that there are lots of different expressions of metaphysics that may or may not correspond to reality. <laughs> you know, we, we're just doing our best. And of course, the Greeks gave us a good one, and it got even better when Origen got a hold of it. But fast forward to, to what we have now, we've got, you know, the eminent frame, and we can talk even about a religionless Christianity. This is one thing that my brother and I, Brad, go around and around about, is do you have to have... Um, a transcendent basis for God as the source or can it be in some sense inverted where the interior presence of God uh, which very much matches up well with modern spirituality and the uh, post-Christian cultural reading of what what we mean when we say God and I'm getting in a little bit far afield, but I'm asking, I guess, a question that I, I want to keep talking about is the content of the kerygma and what, how does context, how is context reflected? Um, and I guess the more modern example I'd give is people talking about meta, if, if we have a, a metaphysics, we don't really have one in an eminent frame, but we can talk about how God works and brings us to being through evolution, something like that. First the of all, yeah, the, the issue with uh, Greek philosophy, uh, there is a kind of valid, valorization of Greek philosophy in some Christian theology. It's kind of the thing that's happening with radical orthodoxy. But I, I guess that I'm making a departure from that, and I'm presuming that John Baer and Origen, and actually I'm assuming the, the Eastern Fathers agree, they are all, of course, engaging Greek philosophical thought, but not to build upon it, but I think to reject it. That's Tzimalakas' point, and Baer is just using Tzimalakas. What's wrong with Greek philosophy? Well, it is the problem that we've talked about, you know, you, and this is just what's wrong with Greek philosophy is what's wrong with all philosophy. I know that sounds like a ridiculous statement. Basically, philosophical thought is always going to be captured in the same frame. It's either the problem of the one or the many. It's the problem of being and nothingness. And so the modern, you know, even the post almost, you know, what, there's a linguistic turn in modern philosophy. Uh, I think it's a correct term, but in other words, we're still faced with the same problem. There really is a resolution, a philosophical re re resolution that cannot be otherwise resolved. That is the problem that comes about in postmodern, what I see postmodern thought is saying, hey, this don't work. It is a deconstruction of human thought. I think that's right. What is human thought? Well, it's identity through difference. It's the reliance upon dualisms. It's, uh, you know, you can say it in, in a lot of ways, depending on 
the system. But in a sense, it it all boils down to the the problems that the Greek Greeks faced. And I think that there really is the sense that Christianity is going to resolve that problem in Christ. That it is not a dualism. But when we talk about the relationship between the Father and the Son, we're talking about this thing being resolved in the person of Christ. So he's going to hold together what are otherwise impossible opposites. And not just philosophically, but I think this gets to the kerygma. This gets to what's being preached. When we talk about Christ being preached, we're talking about the opening to who God is and the experience of God. I think that's Origen's reading of Scripture. You know, the reason this hermeneutic is important is because in this hermeneutic, we encounter Christ. We encounter Christ throughout Scripture not just theoretically, but this is the encounter with Christ. So I, th I think that there really is a failure of human thought. Uh, it, we cannot apprehend who Christ is on the basis of uh, a Greek philosophical system. Did that, did that agree with you, Brian? Or am, am it, agreed, I... it agreed with me. Um, in fact, uh, for my project at the end of this class, I think I'm, I might focus on dualism and I hadn't connected my thoughts to that deeper deeper issue uh, until you started talking but um, I found a secret weapon this morning I remembered from uh, my divinity school days that I had an Andrew Luth book you know he's the one who had the series that bears writing as we're uh -huh. reading uh -huh. um, and it's the uh, the origins of the Christian Christian mystical tradition and it goes through Pseudo Dionysius. Mm -hmm. um, it, it also includes like John of the Cross and Augustine. So I'm happy to be looking at that alongside, and it, it really is. Uh, it was there in our conversations in the the last two classes. I mean, especially as we talked about the Logos and John. Um, but as we're doing this hermeneutics path through early church history and and theology, it's it's really coming up for me again. I mean, it started in college and divinity school for me to kind of ask that main question. Yeah. So good. I'm glad, uh, glad uh, that I asked the question and it came out the way it did. And, uh, yeah, it was really helpful. I put answer. up a blog and I did boil this down. I, you know, it's hard. How do you boil origin down? But this is the way I boiled it down. And that is to say, Hey, we that modern theology has been captured by a, a failed metaphysics that expresses itself in the various theological crises that we've had in regard to the Trinity. You know, how do you talk about the Trinity? It uh, reveals itself in a just in a basic misunderstanding of who God is you know, a kind of degraded understanding of God. And even though Calvin were talking late, I think that Calvinism and all that goes with it is itself then a an expression of a failed metaphysical understanding. People are trying to say, oh, this is the way God works. This is the way he predestines things. And what they're specifically not doing is what Origen has done. In other words, I think that Origen very early on, the way that he expresses this, he says there's the apostolic preaching, and then there's the uh, ecclesiological, or what does he say, ecclesiastical preaching. And I think that's the second in which we would fit theology. If we're thinking of theology as a kind of extrapolation from the apostolic preaching, I think that's exactly, I think you're exactly right. That Origen, in a, in a sense, is our first full-blown theologian, and he's giving us a coherent system, and the first to do so. In other words, he set out to give us a, a coherent view of the world uh, and how to conceive of it. He's not claiming to be infallible. I, I think that he's really hit upon what to call it a singular understanding. He must be correct that the alternative is either 
to do what Plato and in other words, that's the way mm -hmm. Origen is posing his work as over and against Plato. This is the strange thing in all of this. Origen is in you know he himself is it clearly says that his is over and against a Platonic or Aristotelian understanding. So what he's giving us is a logic and maybe logic's the wrong word, but a Christological conception of things, I think that is irreplaceable. If we don't do Christ in the way that he's picturing it, I'm afraid that we fall into metaphysical speculation about God and the Trinity, and that gives us the abhorrent sort of Christianity that we have in this. Some some of it's good, Paul. But yeah, yeah, yeah we, we get. We, I get what you're saying too. Because if our if our understanding of God is wrong, then our our theology is going to corrupt what we teach and say and preach from the pulpit. When when Origen was talking about how the Father, you know, gave all things through the Son, but you know, it's through you know, because He's the Almighty from the beginning of eternity past, and yet Christ was there, the, the Word of God. And I know you mentioned a long time ago, too, that the fa the Son is not subjected to the Father. You know, like we have those hierarchical ways of viewing God within the economy. Origen is going to be accused of subordinationism. But I think what he's describing, in other words, he's describing uh, a relationship between the Father and the Son in which Christ is almost pictured as a creature. And this is part, you know, this is there in uh, Bear's reading that he talks about Rowan Williams' picture of creation. There are several definitions of the word creation. And the way that Origen seems to be using the word creation is in a, not simply the created order, but creation as the full expression of the will of God. That is a picture of Christ as a creature, not, you know, on the order of other creatures, but just, in other words, it's a vocabulary problem. It's a semantic problem. Okay. And, and so it's also new, new creation. Run it right? down for I mean, us. Yeah, yeah. Just the fact that it's to talk about Christ as, as creation, as a creature, misses it until you recognize and I have to say it because he's not here, that what Origen did, uh, like Matt would say, is he gave us theosis back. Now, if we are looking at him, gives us theosis back, because when you start to get into that uh, dualism, you lose that as the central way of thinking of salvation. Yeah. So new creation encapsulates that and shows that um, it's not just he's a creature, He's a new creation. Yeah. Or we can or 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 we can say the incarnate word is new creation at its conception. When when the incarnation came to our world, it wasn't just an ordinary being, but it was something much more than that. Yeah, I'm I'm happy with that. For now, I mean I think we're all still um talking about it. This is I feel like there's so many reflections to make, but it's exciting. Yeah, I think once we once you get the point one that he's always talking about the relation between the Father and the Son as expressed in creation. It's not that Christ is simply by that, you know, Christ is the full expression of who God is in creation, which is not, you know, the, the language here gets a little dangerous. You know, the, the question is about the preexistent Christ. It's just that that conceptuality has tended to dominate. That is, that we've talked about the Logos as something separate from the Incarnation. And we've talked about the pre-incarnate Christ. And what Origen is doing, and Origen is just true to the Church Fathers, and this is Bear's point, the, the thing that is going to appear uh, is the idea of talking about God as if we can talk about him before creation. You know, even Augustine is going to ridicule that notion. You can't talk about God before the beginning, because the beginning is the beginning, and Christ is the beginning. In other words, our entry point into this discussion 
uh, we don't have access to God's eternality other than in and through Jesus Christ. The theological conversation is going to become abstracted away from the incarnation through the notion of a pre-incarnate Christ or a pre-incarnate Logos. Uh, we just don't know about such things, and, and that's not the economy that is being described in the New Testament. Yeah, I, I believe I'm following through. So we don't have to even see, whenever we read John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That reflection, we don't have to imagine the Logos as the preeminent Christ, but we can just view him as the Christ incarnate, and we can kind of project him back. This is the way, and even uh, McCabe, you, you may not like the way he says this, he says, there is no such thing as the pre-existent Christ. It was invented in the 19th century as a way of distinguishing the eternal procession of the Son from the incarnation of the Son. That is, to affirm that Jesus did not become Son of God in virtue of the incarnation. He was already son of God before that in, in this perception. And McCabe rejects this notion from two points of view. He says to speak of the preexistent Christ is to imply that God has a life story, a divine story, other than the story of the incarnation. First, the son of God in this story preexisted as just the son of God. And then later, he was the Son of God made man. He says, this is incoherent and incompatible, at least with the traditional doctrine of God. There can be no succession in the eternal God. No change. Eternity is not, of course, a very long time. It is no time at all. Eternity is not timeless in the sense that an instant uh, is timeless. No, eternity is timeless because it totally transcends time. Speaking of the Son of God becoming man or coming down from heaven, McCabe says, makes a perfectly good metaphor, but it could not be literally true. From the point of view of God, then, in eternity, you know, in eternity, no sense can be given to the idea that at some point in God's life story, the Son became incarnate. Who Christ is in the incarnation is an eternal fact about God. And we can't disconnect those. Cannot we can't disconnect. separate. It'd just be like the heresy of, of um, separating his humanity from his divinity. Yes, I think that's it. And that's the problem we have. At Central, you all did an exercise in one of the classes. You went through and separated out the humanity from the deity. I think that's a huge mistake. The point is that we have the deity through the humanity and the humanity in the deity. We shouldn't separate them, even though that's what theology is continually struggling over. And the reason it's, and it, it is is because I think we've been caught up in a metaphysical understanding that cannot reconcile time and eternity, that cannot reconcile the unchanging God with the changing Christ of history, that cannot reconcile the invisible God with the visible Christ. But that's Origen's starting point. Mm -hmm. He's saying all of these things, that the invisible is made visible, the unchangeable is, is brought and we see him suffer, in other words, that God, who is without a body, is incarnate in Christ. Those realities, the God-man, are fused together, and you cannot separate them for all eternity. This is an eternal, ongoing fact. And that would change our perception of who God is. If we identify Christ as the God-man, fully divine, fully incarnate, he still is fully incarnate, in which is so, I guess, in a way, it probably disturbs people because they're like, well, he can't be pre-incarnate outside of that fabric of time.
But we would say, well, no, is God always the same yesterday, today, and forevermore? Is He's always the same, right? And then we have to affirm He's always incarnate, or does that, or is that wrong? Well, it depends. McCabe actually takes your question on here. He says, well, you know, could Moses say that Jesus, you know, could he talk about that event in his lifetime, that Jesus is now, and he would say, no, Moses can't say that. Because from a time perspective, you know, that doesn't work. But, of course, yes. from this perspective of eternity, uh, he is. He is. So th okay. this is they're going to talk about scripture as being the continuation of an incarnation, the church as the continuation of incarnation. And when we get to Maximus, we're going to even take it a step further that Maximus is going to say creation is incarnation. The the point is well taken. What do we make of the I guess the feelings that are there? Given that Origen was condemned as a heretic, and so much was lost in history by emphasizing where he went wrong, which was actually what would have preserved Theosis, uh, given a clearer uh, picture. I mean, we're, we're messing with what ifs, but what do we do with that? What do we make of the fact that, you know, so early in church history, our best and first theologian was condemned? <laughs> It's terrible. We're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had some some fine answer for you. I, I feel your question. I'm like, man, uh, and of course, in saying that we lost origin, that's not exactly right because origin is he is such a genius. Certainly, in the Cappadocian fathers, they're continuing on. There is no east-west split yet. They're going to mutedly work with origin. But even Augustine, many people will describe Augustine or Augustine as really being formed in a originist understanding. You're, you're right, Brian. He is the theologian of the church. He does give formation. And the pervert, you know, even the people that are going to attack him and pervert him really are not escaping him. That doesn't lessen the tragedy, perhaps, but it's at some level, of course, you, you can't do away with a genius like Origen. I think there's a failure of thought that I don't know what to do with. Once we understand the reality that he's tracing, realize, oh man, here is the resolution after going through modernity and the failures of theological modernity and theological fundamentalism and liberalism. And here is a return, I think, to an understanding that reconciles so many of the issues that we are dealing with the soul body duality, heaven, earth duality. Uh, the split in the Trinity, the you know, you just go right on through predestination. Modern, yes, as the res end result, but like the whole of Christendom as a foundation for understanding who we are and how society and church one became a, a dualism and two uh, got fused in Christian America, so to speak. That part of history and the, the violence, the violence fused with, with it all. Um, how we're talking about, you know, 75% of the time that the faith has been around. Yeah. So and we're time. just tapping into to it in late modernity and post-modernity and whatever. I mean, that's great. It's never too late, but it's, it's baffling. The way that Ron Williams has pictured this is that yeah, you know, we're 2,000 years in, he says, but maybe we're, maybe we're just getting started. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's that's right. If you add tens of thousands of years onto the two we got under our belt so far, it could get interesting. <laughs> yeah, this is what we're about as Christians. I don't, You know, this is our, our thing that we're to be about, is to, to do the work of talking about God because in some way, that conversation, as Origen pictures Bible reading, is where we encounter Christ. Have people completely lost out? Of course not, you know, that Jesus shows up everywhere. But I do think that they're your picture of violence, because I think it's just a given 
that what we are describing is violence over nonviolence. That is, that origin is preparing people for martyrdom, and a, a, a martyrdom in which no violent thought, no unpeaceable action, no untoward anger toward even the people that are torturing them would arise. In other words, like all of the church fathers, his is a peaceable hermeneutic. And so to me, that's a telltale sign that once we turn to a violent understanding, we've also shifted up our metaphysical understanding. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, good angle, too. Like I said, it's never too late. I'm also thinking it's right in time. It's just in time because it's getting, you know, the world's global connections and the technology, whether we're reset here anytime soon or not, we'll wait and see. But that's an odd thing to say, but you never know what destruction will set set back what we've called progress for hundreds of years. But it's an interesting time, and I think you're right. I mean, it has, Christ has shown through and his his message his person his church has been there for us and we're still still figuring out what it means to be transformed and it has to mean something it, it cannot be caught up in the agonistic violent struggle that i think in other words what i'm describing here is not simply a personality this is a philosophical system this is a metaphysical system violence is is a cosmos it's a, it's a cosmic order that I think it, when we talk about an apocalyptic understanding, and that violent order is being undone, I think, in, a, in an apocalyptic reordering, which is inclusive then of a shift in worldview, a shift in the mind, a transformation of the mind, which has to be a shift in foundations. Yeah. We may say that glibly, that Christ is the foundation and it may not mean much to us. We may not know where to go with that. But I think what or Origen is really, he's really working with that and saying, oh, no, this is the case that Christ is the understanding, the wisdom that we're building upon. This is our first principle. And if we can understand that, we can understand God and his mission and his love more clearly, too, and how to enact in our dying world. Yeah, the love of God, the uh, the love of neighbor, it does sum up the, you know, love and peace always go together. And I don't know that you're going to get to love and peace apart from the transformation of the mind that we're describing. I mean, you can get there a little bit. You know, I think that's true throughout church history. People are going to go into just war. Clearly, they've got a perverted view of God and of love, but <laughs> at least there there is the I don't think there's a complete loss of the gospel, but there's certainly been a perversion of the gospel. And very early on, I mean, that's the strange thing. That's what all these guys are fighting. You know, it, the, the heretics are from day one attacking the very heart of the gospel, and that's how we get theology. It is a response. And so I think we're still in the same business. We're saying, well, the heretics may predominate at this point, but we're still in the business of, of fighting off the heresies and saying, no, here's the, the truth of the gospel. When I woke up early this morning and remembered Andrew Luth on my bookshelf and actually laid my hands on it and opened it up, the first chapter I went to, although um, I think chapter three is on origin, but chapter four is on Augustine. And I went to Augustine, and what struck me in that reading was seeing the unique contribution he made at the time that he made at the time that he made it without focusing on the negative part aspects of you know the violence the the misinterpreting sin and romans 5 that the bostic article going in on augustine <laughs> which we're doing i mean that's what we're doing we're, we're providing a critique and and exploring the critique and and understand the implications of it but at the same time there are were amazing and immense contributions in his and unique contributions in his his voice and thought his corpus and it'll be fun i think to work through what was harmful and what was not whether i'm up to the task at least we can point out here oh, at least we can say here's the worst of augustine <laughs> yeah yeah uh, well, can't uh, cover it all in one class uh, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work in this class that 
people spend their lives <laughs> studying <laughs> any one of these figures, you know. Uh, yeah. but I think we're the idea. I think we're. I hope we're getting the uh, the sweep of of things. I I don't want to demonize Augustine, but I think at least he is representative of the shift, the Augustinian, you know, the Constantinian shift. Certainly, there's a lot happening. The, you know, this sociologically, politically, and obviously theologically, that he is kind of the, the representative of, and certainly not a singular figure. But in his genius, again, I think that he is representative of that Constantinian show. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you came on. I'm excited. I really appreciated this class. And like I said, will be open to propose some sort of uh, coherent yeah yeah I'm glad proposal. I'm glad you're thinking that way but I look forward to it and reading what we're reading this week and I'm, I didn't look yet but I'm glad you mentioned your blog because I want to go back and look what you said I really struggled with uh, boiling it down and I think uh, obviously I didn't say everything that I said in the lecture but I think at least I boiled it down to once to us to the uh, the singular thought that I think is uh, makes it accessible. Let me know. Let me know if that's true. <laughs> I will. I will. I'll let you know. I, I uh, always get something and get a lot out of your your blogs and your topic. Good. Good work. I appreciate it, Brian. I appreciate you. Hang in there and soak up the sun while you can. It's probably uh, dark soon. Yeah, yeah. I may don't do that. <laughs> All right. Well, good. have a good weekend. All right. You too. Good talk. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.